Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 99, Humanism and Medicine. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Laura Vodder about how to stay human in medicine, what this world will try to take from you, and what you have to give back. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited today to have Laura Vodder on, and I've been a fan of hers for a very long time because this job is hard. This job is very hard. You can give a piece of yourself to medicine every day, and it doesn't always give back. You can lose yourself in this job. You should not give your entire life away because it's not going to love you back. And that's hard to say because I love medicine. There are times that it brings me such joy. And there are also times where it brings me such heartache. And there have been times in my life where I've given so much of myself away that I have nothing left. And being human in medicine means a lot of things. It is acknowledging the truth, making relationships, and taking care of yourself. Laura Vodder is fabulous. She is a board-certified internal medicine physician, and she's currently a Hemonc Fellow. She's a mother, a published writer, and an advocate for humanism across medicine, both patients and clinicians. She got her Bachelor of Science from Notre Dame, a Master in Public Health from Pittsburgh, and her Doctor of Medicine from Indiana. She completed her residency training at Indiana University. She is a fabulous writer. She's always inspirational. She's a huge supporter of people being vulnerable, honest, and open and making their life better. I am honored to have her on the podcast today. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the As A Woman podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. It's such a privilege to be here. I love your podcast. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you, friend. Well, I want to start by having you share a little bit about your backstory and how you got into medicine. Was this something you always wanted to do or was this something that kind of came up later in life? How did you get on that pathway? So, you know, it's a funny thing. My mom says that I knew I wanted to be a doctor before she did. So my mom went back to medical school when I was nine years old. We moved around. Yeah, we moved around. Yeah, like you, Natalie, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad is an engineer for 3M. We started in the Twin Cities and we kind of moved around to move up as an engineer. You had to move around. And so we ended up in Indiana and we were just going to be here for one year. And my mom says, you know, I think I want to go back to medical school. And she did. And so she trained from when I was nine years old until I was 16. So she took me to, I mean, this is crazy, but she took me to the cadaver lab <laughs> as a kid. I love it. 
Yeah, I mean, I was studying in the medical school library, so I was, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of things and had a lot of experience with medicine my whole life because of my mom. And, you know, some of my mom's patients, you know, I had a, a very close friend, family friend and a coach who was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer when I was in high school. And because she was such a close family friend, she said, I know you're interested in medicine. Why don't you come to my oncology appointments, my chemotherapy? I even observed her surgery. Wow. OR when I was in high school. And so that was, those were, were very formative years and they definitely influenced my decision to go into medicine, undoubtedly. Huh? Yes. How amazing to see your mom, like a living, breathing role model going through that really difficult educational residency, all of that stuff while you're at such a young age that, I mean, you knew what medicine was when you got into it. So we can't say you didn't know what you were getting into. <laughs> That's true. And then I took some, I, so I, I did my undergrad at Notre Dame and I, then I took three years between going into uh, medical school because my whole life had been medicine, seeing my mom go through this. And I wanted to be really sure that it's what I wanted to do and not something that I was just not looking at other options. And so I did a master's in public health. I spent a year teaching in Haiti. Um, I, you know, that's really where I got this interest in public health, which is really prevention, this combination of prevention and social justice together. And so I believe that that's made me a stronger physician because of the different experiences I've had. And I'm great, very grateful for them. And it confirmed I wanted to go on this path. I love your backstory so much. And I love that you took that time, that kind of gap year time to get other educational and worldly experiences, because I can see that coming out in how you represent yourself, how you've chosen to lead your career, how you relate to your patients is by having this other perspective. Did you know, like when you went into medical school, so you say, okay, yes, my mom's a doctor. I've watched her do this. I'm going to go to medical school. Did you know this would be the path? Hemonk is where you'd be, or was this something else that sparked along the way? Came into medical school with an idea that I was interested in oncology because of that close family friend. And I, you know, I had, I had that experience. And then in my public health degree, I also had a research, a cancer research um, mentor. We did a number of projects together and, um, but I wanted to be open-minded. I really wanted to come in and say, I want to look at everything. I want to get a broad experience. But I think the truth is, is that your mentorships and your experiences will influence your desire to go into a certain field to such a high degree. And I just kept coming back to oncology as my interaction with my patients. It was um, working with adults. It was all of these things that kept kind of converging onto this path that I wanted to go into oncology. I'm very curious because I know along my own pathway, I heard lots of feedback about the choices I was making. I want to go into this field. I want to change residencies. I want to do this fellowship. People always had something to say. Has there been at any point negative comments about, oh, oncology is such a sad or depressing field. You shouldn't do that. Did you have any of those side, you know, voices that people were putting into your head about your chosen path? You know, it's interesting. I had a number of people in my family, um, people who have been supportive the whole way, but, you know, even my own mom, who's a physician, she said, are you really sure you want to do this? This is, you know, your patients are going to be so sick and you're going to have a lot of grief as part of your career. And, you know, my grandma was saying the same thing. And so I think a lot of people were wondering, you know, how is this going to affect you? This is a really hard profession. How, how are you going to handle this? And are you sure this is what you want to do? And so I, I thought about it a lot. And I have developed strategies as a physician to deal with those things because I do experience grief and sadness almost on a daily basis. But I've found ways to, co to cope with that. 
Share with us some of the ways that you cope, because I think this has been such a year of profound grief for everybody and for especially people in healthcare. It has been a year where we've not been trusted. There's been so much misinformation. We've watched friends, family members, patients die. We've seen practices shut down. It's been a really hard grief-filled year. And I know some of the ways, but will you share with people how you started to cope with some of this? I really believe that your longevity in the field of medicine is based on how you process and cope with what you experience. And this is for every field of medicine is going to experience illness, death, and loss. Um, For me, it has really been writing. Writing has been this profoundly therapeutic element of my life that I journal, especially so in my internal medicine residency on my ICU months, I would just journal every evening what I witnessed and what I felt and what what it meant in my life. And not only was this therapeutic for me, but it helped me connect with my patients. It helped me to see them as human beings, to really connect with their stories, to think about their narratives. And it was protective for me as a physician. And so I think writing is really profound and also um, therapy, having a grief counselor. I have someone that I meet with regularly that helps me process and understands, right, is trained in this and helps me process the things I feel. I think getting enough sleep, exercising, eating a plant-based diet, all of these things are going to be protective for your physical and mental health and are going to be really important. I love that you're bringing up some of these things and I want to expand on them a little bit more because I did not do any of this in my own training, right? So I was an OBGYN resident, It was at Parkland, a very, very busy hospital. And the stress of the workload, the crazy hours, the catastrophic outcomes that are going to happen when you take care of a high volume of patients who don't have access to medical care, it can be very traumatizing. And I felt like my way to deal with it at that time period was very much like my peers. And it was to try to shut it off, to try to not think about it, to try to put it away. And then, you know, other negative coping behaviors. I mean, some of them were go have alcohol or even over-exercise, like go for a really, really long run or not, you know, things that were not necessarily the best for me, like regular exercise would be way better or eating terribly instead of, you know, eating good and getting sleep was never on the radar of I should get sleep. And nobody ever saw a therapist or talked about it. And I have seen one and love her now outside of training. And it's very, very helpful. But I really feel like I shut myself off instead of dealing with some of these outcomes or just the exposure to what can happen and the privilege it is for us as healthcare, you know, physicians and healthcare providers overall to be able to, one, see people at their most vulnerable time and hopefully help them, but also to watch some of the hardships they're having. That's really hard to deal with. And so, If you are talking to somebody, I think I love how you just said just writing, just literally acknowledging your feelings feels like such an easy starting point. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% 
and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No long shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. I have a document on my computer. Most people know about it because I call it life planning, but it's truly like an online journal and I'll just like blur about feelings and it's been going on for years, but I never did anything like that in training. I probably would have told you I didn't have time and it probably I needed it. How do you try to encourage especially people in medical training, you know, to give themselves that time so they can protect themselves and not lose who they are in the midst of all that is medicine. Yeah, I think that what you said, Natalie, is the hardest thing. Where is time to do this? And I just want to encourage anyone who's listening that this doesn't have to be sitting down for an hour of time. This can be dictating into a document as you're walking from point A to point B. In the hospital, you're walking out to the parking lot. I have I have a similar document like you have, Natalie. I have a Google Drive document. It's just a running document that I call journal. And I dictate my feelings, my emotions, what I've seen into it. It's not perfect. There's typos. But I think when I'm on my busiest, most stressful rotations, I just speak it out loud into 
that. And it's very therapeutic. And I also have a written one. And so I kind of go back to it years later. And still, I feel like I'm working through, you know, these secondary traumas I've experienced in my training, because we don't talk about this in our medical training, that what, what clinicians, nurses included, what we see, what we witness is traumatizing. And that affects us to a high degree. But yet, if we can't find healthy ways to process that, then we aren't going to last in this field. And so, yeah, I think writing has been, for me, the main outlet that's been so helpful. I love that you're saying this. What I have found, and this is so interesting, you bring it up about going back to this document or writing about it, is in my career, when I've been at the junction of trying to make major decisions for my career and for my life, when I've gone back even to, you know, a couple of years prior and I read through how I was feeling, what was happening at the time, how I was processing it, what I was wanting and what was important to me, and I read through the time, I often will then have much more clarity on the decision I'm trying to make at the present. So I think we cannot, yeah, underemphasize that being in touch with your feelings, being honest with yourself, and it's truly what it is, it's just being honest with what you're experiencing can help you understand what you need in the future, even at an unrelated time period, because it'll help you grow from those experiences. And if somebody had told me that earlier in my life, maybe that would have helped me invest into that time into myself earlier because I felt like when I've been trying to make decisions, like, should I leave and should I open this practice? You know, gosh, there's a lot at stake. I'm going to take out a big loan. What if patients don't follow me because I left a practice a year and a half ago? And what if we lose all, you know, we have this big loan and nobody comes and it closes and blah, blah, blah. And I have all these doubts. I look back and I can say, but this is achieving what I, what I was struggling with at these other places. And this is going to help me bridge the gap. And this is in line with who I feel like I am and what it is that I want, right? So true. It's so true. And I I go back to these things and I have published a number of essays based on experiences from three or four years ago. And I I think that, you know, it helps you if you have any interest in being a writer, I think finding a way to write every day, even if it's just, I had this really difficult experience, like processing that, working through it and articulating that is such a profound skill for, you know, for a therapeutic reason, but also if you have interest in um, being a public speaker and writing and being able to um, share your experiences and share stories are really powerful. It's interesting because, well, social media didn't exist, obviously, when we were younger, but I've always probably listed on like my hobby list, like reading and writing. Like I I would consume books at a really high level. Even as a child, I just wanted to intake the information and I've always really loved writing, creative writing. And so I feel like, you know, social media now has been a way where despite being introverted, you can express some of that creative side in such a nice way. And it's been very good for me to be able to tap into that into even as simple as Instagram and blog posts and other things. I know you have been writing a lot and I'd really love to hear and have you share more with us some of the things that you've been working on and really where you envision writing going with your career and what you're working on. So I actually started my, I don't know if I told you this, Natalie, but my online journey, I started for the sole reason of sharing my writing and connecting with other authors. And um, I had an idea for a novel when my daughter was two months old and now she's four and a half, right? And so this has been a long process, but I've been writing this. So I've been writing a novel for, well, it took me like a year just to find the courage to tell myself I could do it, you know? And then, and then I've been writing 
been writing, you know, little, just a little bit at a time throughout my training. And so I am in the editing phase of that book. And I have no idea what will become of it. I don't expect my first book to be, you know, but I think the process is something that I need and it's something that I want to share. And so I'm writing that. I write, um, I have a goal for 2021 to write an essay a month and to oh. try to submit it for public. So, you know, I've written four essays now that I've actually submitted for publication in the last few years, but my goal is to really start to do this more. And so it's a little challenge for myself. And then I have um, a nonfiction. So I, I have been in for two years, I've been in the process of finally, I have a trademark approved. So the Yay, smile fail is, <laughs> if anyone wants to talk about that, that's wow, a lot. So my long-term strategy is to write a book on that as well, which will be more of a cancer prevention, health promotion book. We need that book. I mean, we need the novel book too, I'm sure whatever it is about is going to be amazing. But I really feel like I love seeing more physicians and even myself in the fertility space talking about what can you do? How can you take care of your body so that it serves you the best no matter what it's up against, right? So if it's up against infertility or cancer and how do you prevent cancer? How do you help your body heal from cancer? I think that book is so needed and I'm so excited to stand on the sidelines and cheer you on in that journey. And can we just say for a minute, I mean, right, it sounds like this huge goal. I love that you said, a year to get up the courage to even say that you were writing a book because I relate to that so much. I feel like I've been writing this book that nobody wants for so long, but it's really, it helps me, right? It is a thing that I want that I feel like I need to express and get that information out there. And I'm just believing in the fact that if I feel this need, somebody else must be on the other side of the bridge wanting it, right? Need it. We need it, Natalie. Women need this information. And you just have to, I know this has a, your book has a place and it's going to be found and it's going to be this year, right? Your, your, it's got to be this, this year. And, year. And you know what, Natalie, too, I think the other thing, when you're a physician and you're used to being an expert in an area and being really good at what you do, now you're trying to learn a new skill. And I think for many of us, we have so much confidence in the skill we've built and now you're doing something that you're not as good at and you know what it takes to become a professional. You know, it takes time and practice and effort and creating habits, but it's a process. And so I just try to be gentle with myself and say, I know what it took from when I was a pre-med until now. And I know that this writing process is going to be a lifelong journey and I'm just going to be consistent and hope that it turns out. I love that. Let's transition a moment. I want to know about when in this journey for you, this medical journey, and part of this taking care of yourself, but when did you become a mom and what was that journey like for you? Because I know the journey to motherhood and medicine has not really easy for most people. And so was this a, hey, we're ready to and take this journey? Was this a surprise? Did you struggle? What was it like for you when you decided you were ready to be a parent? Sure. My husband and I had my daughter when I was a fourth year medical student and we planned this, you know, and the reason is I had a mentor during my public health degree. She has two kids and she had her kids much later. And she said, Laura, there's never a good time to have children in medicine. It's really hard no matter when you do it. Medical school is a small window. Fellowship is a small window, maybe in your later years of residency, but when you're ready financially, emotionally, spiritually, when you're ready to have a child, you should just do it. And for that reason, uh, and I took a little time between, you know, med school and, and from between undergrad and med school. And so when I had my daughter, I was, I was pregnant all of my, nearly all of my third year of medical school. I had my daughter when I was a fourth year, I was 28. Um, and it seemed like the right time for us. It was 
hard in many ways because I started intern year when my daughter turned one. Oh, that's so hard. Yeah, but I was lucky in many ways that I was able to breastfeed her. And I had, when you're a medical student, you're a valuable member of the team, but you're not an essential member of the team. And so I was able to go pump and I was able to say, hey, this I need to go do this. And for the most part, people were very supportive. Um, but when I started intern year and throughout my residency, right, it's been, there've been a lot of calls, a lot of late nights, a lot of times when my husband has been kind of a functioning single parent. And so in that regard, it's been hard. And then we always thought we were going to have two, and then we've been very happy happy with one. And so, you know, my daughter's four and a half now and um, we're very fortunate with our little family. So it's so hard because there's this desire to not make anybody else have to work more for you, right? There's this desire to say, I don't need extra help. I can do the job just as good as anybody. And I'm going to do it even at my own expense or even at my family's expense at times. And I find that that is a struggle that I have felt constantly, you know, from the moment we started trying to get pregnant, even things like feeling guilty when I had an ectopic pregnancy and had to get methotrexate and took a day off. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't take a day off. And I was a fellow. And luckily my senior level fellow at the time, she said, I don't know why we're talking about this. You're not going to come in. I'm covering the clinical duties, the end. And that was amazing of her. And I've always been thankful for her at that time. But why does it take somebody else forcing us to feel like it's okay to take time for ourselves Absolutely. and feel right? And I feel like we have to, or to say, I need to, my child is sick. Gosh, I felt guilty so many times saying my child is sick and you know, that can't fall on my husband this time. That needs to be me. It's a very hard line to walk as a mom in medicine, I find. It's really hard. And as a medical student, as being a pregnant medical student, I never wanted to ask anyone for anything. You know, I was, I'm going to be stoic. I'm not going to be, I'm going to be like every other medical student. And so, I mean, I would drive to work and throw up, pull the car over and throw up and be on rounds and just run to the, I knew where every conference room was, where every bathroom was. And thank goodness that was only my first trimester. And I had a very supportive team, you know, but I had my surgical rotations when I was seven, eight, nine months pregnant. And so, I mean, I was in the OR and I had, for the most part, had wonderful support, but I really did not want to be perceived as different or, you know, I didn't want to, like you said, I don't want to, I didn't want to ask for anything. And what they found an irregular uh, heart rate for my daughter and I had to go get like a stat fetal echo and I had to take that half day off. And I felt, I felt I was so scared for my daughter and she was fine, but I was hated not being able to be there. You know, it's really hard. It's hard to balance that. It is hard. You know, I have found in my career, of course, it is indefinitely easier and outside of training. It's not actually easy, though, because you're going to take a day off. So I'm in a two-physician practice. I adore my partner. She's amazing. We're at a very similar stage of life. We both have two young kids. We have a husband who does the primary caretaking of them, even though they have jobs. But if I'm going to not be at work, because I'm going to do something with my kids, like she's got to be there, right? So when you're not there, somebody else has got to pick up the slack. So it never really gets easier, but setting really clear boundaries helps a lot. So like for the most part for us, we each have one, you know, work day off per week. So it's like, I don't work Mondays, she doesn't work Fridays. And if the other person's out of town and you cover, then we kind of flip it back. So you get that day back to be mom, to get errands done, to do whatever. We also do not meet unless we have to in the evening, right? We'll block out patient time and we'll meet during the day. And so that we have our evening times 
really protected for dinner time and bath time and bedtime and those type of moments. And I find that having, when you get the chance to choose where you're working and what you're doing, having somebody who's either at a similar stage where you are, who understands the stage that you're at makes a huge difference because I've been at practices and places before where somebody can't relate to what you need. It's harder to set the boundary and it's hard to have the boundary respected. I don't know because you're in training. So you don't really have as much liberty setting boundaries at this stage of your life and fellowship or, or do you, is your fellowship, what's your experience like? Um, I, I feel very supported in my fellowship, but I have, I mean, being a fellow, as you know, um, especially your first year fellowship, I work a lot of um, inpatient wards where I'm taking care of patients in the hospital where I'm there, they're paging me throughout the day and I'm, I'm their person, right? I'm writing the notes, I'm seeing them, I'm doing procedures and learning and I have a whole clinic of patients that depend on me as well. And so my husband, he has been, you know, for anyone who's listening and you've not found a partner yet, find the person who supports you in your dreams and your dreams as they evolve over time. I mean, my husband has, he has done all of the drop-offs and pickups from daycare. He does all the evening stuff. He's the soccer coach. He is the weekend guy. I mean, he is, he is the most supportive person that I know. And I, because of him, I mean, I can do all of these other things. I can have, I can write, right. I can be, I can have a social media presence. I can do these things. And so having a supportive partner helps so much. I just wrote that down to quote it out of the podcast because I love that statement so much. Find the person who supports you in all of your dreams and as they evolve over time. And that's such an important thing because who you are now, no matter what stage you're at listening, is not who you're going to be in five years or 10 years. And the things that I'm doing now and the things I want to do are not all the things that Jason signed up for, particularly minus the fact that I kind of want to do this thing and and help people. And what does that mean to help people? And it changes over time. So having somebody who says, oh, you think, okay, Pinnacle Conference, you want to support women in medicine. Yeah, you, you should go for that. You should do that. And if you need time for that, that's good. I'll give you time and not make you feel guilty or other things. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the, we don't really talk about it as much as finding somebody and they don't have to be stay at home, right? They can have a job. They can, they can have their own dreams and they can work all the time and you can get other help in your house. That's, you know, nanny or family or whatever, but having somebody who sees value and the things that you want to achieve and the things you see value in, I think is extremely important and something that women don't talk about as much, like finding the spouse who's going to be supportive of the successful woman, that's a really important thing. It is. And, you know, I dated some men in my life who just medicine was not for them. And that's okay. You know, that is their, that's okay if they don't want to marry a female physician. And I'm really grateful for my husband who has been, you know, yes, go for this trademark. Yes, be a writer, right? All these things that have evolved in my life that I never anticipated are just possible because I have that support. I always use this example of Jason when I first was like, hey, I'm going to start an Instagram and talk about fertility. And he's like, okay, whatever. Do people want to read about that on Instagram? And in 2016, who knew if we didn't really know if they did. I was like, I don't know, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's like, okay, sounds great. You know, and then of course now he's like, Hey, that let's stand there. Let's take this picture for Instagram. Oh, are you going to do that post today? And he'll like send me 
news articles, like when fertility makes the news, right? And so he'll be like, hey, look, this is trending. Maybe you want to talk about this. And so so that's so sweet. But it's kind of like, all right, I don't know how this dream will go for you. And then sees that it's something that is important to me. I think that's all that really matters, right? Whether it's valuable or not, it's important to you, your spouse, your partner, um, helps you protect the things that are important to you so that you can become that person you need to become. Right. And appreciating that in a relationship, we're, we're each contributing different things and being really grateful for what the other person contributes. And I think, you know, going through medical training, especially if you have kids and along the way, being really grateful for the people in your life who provide support. And I think our days are so rushed and busy that I sometimes forget that, but I really try to be appreciative and, um, you know, be really uh, forgiving if our house is not clean, you know, all the things just, you know, just being really grateful, I think is, is a great approach. How do you deal, do you talk to your daughter about the things you do? Does she know what type of doctor you are? Does she know what you deal with on a day-to-day basis when you talk about your day? What is, what is y'all's normal right now? Yeah. So my daughter knows that I'm a doctor and she doesn't really understand what cancer is. You know, I try to talk to her about that. Often I just say that my parent, my, you know, my patients are really, really sick and that I'm taking care of them. And um, she's, you know, four and a half. So she's not quite to the point where she understands it all. But I, you know, Natalie, thank you for asking that. I just published an essay yesterday. It's called In the Valley. And it talks about my experience working in the COVID wards and then tucking her into bed and singing a song to her and um, processing this grief that I feel, right, as I'm singing her this lullaby. And I think even though she doesn't understand it all. She can, you know, she'll say, you told daddy that your patient died. You know, what does died mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and so, you know, you, you, you know, you're as a physician, especially in COVID times that your, your family is at risk for infection, right? Especially in the beginning, we were so worried about this, but I also see this risk for, you know, how is, how is the emotional aspect of my job? How is this going to affect her too? And she, she, you know, kids are so intuitive. They read into that. And so we talk about it and we talk about the hard things. And I think that's okay. It's so interesting because my kids are four or they're five and six, and they know that I'm a fertility doctor. I don't think they know what that means. They know that I help put babies in mommy's tummies, but they have a really hard time when um, they'll say, oh, did everybody, did everybody get a baby today? And I'll be like, no, you know, not everybody, you know, got a baby and understanding that why do some people not get to have babies? Like, why does that happen? And, you know, the, I'm like, those are great questions. It's part of what mommy does is try to figure that out and try to help. And, you know, starting to see how they, View, start to view the world as that first realization that the world is not fair, right? It is a very, um, it's very interesting to watch as a parent as they start to go from this idea of this is, oh, this is the world and everything's the same. And then it's not the same. And especially in this year of so much kind of societal shifting, you know, we talk to our kids who are older than your daughter about, you know, when George Floyd was murdered and, you know, talking through that and talking about riots and talking about racism and talking about white supremacy and all of these things and topics. It's very, I feel like they take it in well and they've accepted that the world's not fair and they know that they're fortunate, but it's, it feels like you're breaking this little bubble of just that everything is great. Do you know what I mean? I feel like, you know, 
There's some books too. I don't know if you have any of these for, but we have like, it's like little people series and it's, uh, we have a book about Rosa Parks and we talk about how Rosa Parks was pushed down by a boy and how her mom yelled at her and wanted to throw her in jail and how she had to sit in the back of the bus. And, you know, and she, she really um, identifies with these characters, right? She says, well, why, why are they doing this to her? And why is this happening? And, you know, we, we have Maya Angelou's book and we read these things. And I think that she just connects to human beings because they're human beings. And I'm, you know, she, she has such a big heart. I think all kids do. And how do we make sure that they love all human beings and, and, you know, be an advocate for being a force for good in the world. Right. I think that's like the biggest, the biggest thing I want for my kid is just to, you know, teach her to be a force for good. Oh, I love that. Sometimes my kids, I mean, they're, they're amazing. I'm so, so lucky to be their mom, but you know, they are both, I feel equally proud of me for being a doctor. They will say, my mommy's a doctor, but they also will guilt me very bad when I have to like leave and go to work. Oh, you have to go to work. Oh, those patients. You love your patients more than us. I hate when they, I like, where do they get that from? I don't know. Um, does your daughter ever kind of, kind of guilt you on those things or is she not quite to that stage yet? She, she definitely does. When I was a resident um, working night shift, that was the hardest because I would leave home sometimes around five or six o'clock and she would just not let me go. And she would say, you know, I can't fall asleep without you. I need you, mommy. I love you so much. Why can't they hire another doctor? You know, all these things come up and they still do. And I think that she's getting better, but she's still you know, it really helps me having a mom who went through medical training. And now I see her as courageous and, you know, going after her dreams, making anything possible for me. I feel like because my mom did this later on in her life, she went back to medical school when she was 37 and she did all this. And I really feel like no dream is out of reach. And that was so, as a young person, right, that was just so formative for me. And I love, I try to think, you know, 10 years down the road, my daughter will appreciate and be able to see that she can do whatever she wants to do. I love that so much because it really is true. I hear all the time, I'm too old for that. I can't start that now. And I think seeing a living, breathing example, especially for you as your mom, that's so, so, so powerful. But I really think to anybody, this is your life. This is your, you know, one life, depending on your beliefs, but let's all agree, this is your one current life. And we want to make the best of it. And I really feel like that requires you to be honest and truthful with yourself, to take care of your body, but also take care of your emotional, your mental, your spiritual self, and to really be able to set some priorities and take care of people. How do you you know, not just personally deal with it, but how do you try to relate to your patients when, you know, you're an oncology fellow, you, the brunt comes on you. And very often that's the first time some people have really been looking at their own mortality and that life is going to possibly be ending sooner for them than they anticipated. I think, how do you connect with them and kind of what advice do you give to people when having those hard conversations with patients? Um, so hi, my mom had a stroke, a subarachnoid hemorrhage when I was a first year medical student and she spent two weeks in the critical care ICU. I mean, they told me that she was going to die, that she was, you know, not going to survive this. And I was a first year medical student. I knew nearly nothing. And there was just so much medical jargon thrown at me. So many white coats who came in the room and just stood over the bed. Um, I was very afraid and uncertain and, you know, frankly, terrified. 
Um, and I would just go home and cry myself to sleep. And that experience at the very beginning of my medical training has just stayed with me. You know, I think, I think they're very easy and very clear ways that we can show patients that we care. You know, half of patients don't think that their doctors are compassionate. We miss 70% of opportunities to show compassion. And so the easy, you know, there's easy things we can do. We can sit down with our patients when we have the opportunity. We can sit at their eye level or below. We can look them in the eye. We can give something I've been doing for my patients is I just give them the first 45 to 60 seconds of the, you know, the encounter. How are you doing today? You know, how are you feeling? What brings you to clinic? What brings you to the hospital? And then I just listen, right? And patients can often say what they need to say within that time. And they feel heard. I don't have to ask, you know, there's a lot of things they answer. I think that really helps build relationships. And then connecting with them on some level, right? Who are you outside of your illness? You know, really, you know, patients are people to care for and not problems to solve. Who are they beyond their illness? And that really, when we know who they are, it helps us connect with them. What are your hobbies? Tell me about your family. What do you do for work? You know, what's important to you? And I think that helps. And then if you're, so you, you mentioned, you know, bad news, how do you do that? I feel like this is something I do almost every day, unfortunately. But for those of you who are listening, I think the best thing you can do is just set up the situation to support your patients. So if you have the opportunity to have a family member with them or on the phone, if you're in a private room, right, set up the situation so this patient feels supported so that when you deliver the news, um, it's going to be a lot easier to manage, right? No, there's almost nothing worse than having to bear difficult news by yourself. I think this is so important. I've talked about before my cousin, I was a first year medical student when he was in a bad house fire and he had third degree burns over 80% of his body. He was in the burn ICU where I was a medical student and I took on that burden with my aunt and uncle of being in most of their meetings and their consultations because I was the only medical, of course, I'm a first year medical student. That's like barely medical, but I was the only medical person in the family and it really impacted me. He ultimately died, but watching how uh, different people interacted with them over the course of this very difficult, it was, he was in the burn ICU for months and over, you know, his care and how they, he died um, his heart stopped intraoperatively in a surgery. So it's like his 12th surgery just to fix contractures and his heart oh. stopped and they resuscitated him. And then ultimately they got him back, but you had no brain function. They needed my aunt and uncle to decide to remove him from life support because he's not going to be functional. And I remember sitting there while they're telling us this and feeling like I understood what was happening, right? And that they were not getting it and nobody was telling them very clearly that, you know, his heart had stopped so long that he has now, you know, he's died. They were able to get his heart beating, but his brain is not going to function. That this is not, you know, and I felt like they wouldn't look at them in the eyes. You know, the team that came was looking at the ground. They were talking very soft. They were kind of going around the point. And that really impacted me. The whole situation was really hard, obviously. And I didn't even know if I'd be in medicine for a while. But when I kind of came over it, I've always felt like it was very important to talk clearly and directly to patients. So I look them in the eye and say, you know, I see where you are and this is not good news, but I'm going to tell you this is what it is because you don't need me to go around or sugar. There's no easy way to be on the receiving end of that. But that's not something anybody really teaches you. Nobody teaches you how to have this bedside manner that people talk about. Really, it, it's about relating to people caring about them. And also what you said, 
knowing their story. That's like why I love my job is I really feel like I get to know people and what do they want and why do they want it? And we may not get there. That's the real truth. I feel like that's very similar in a different realm. I don't, I'm never going to have hundred percent success and neither are you. Right. So there are some jobs where you can be a pediatrician and none of your patients may die and they may pass through their well child checks and you may not experience things where at some point there will be, you know, loss of a various nature. And so when you're never going to have that 100% success rate, you're going to have to learn how to communicate bad situations to people at hard times and vulnerable times of their lives. That's so true. And, you know, medicine is an apprenticeship profession. We learn to be doctors by observing doctors. And so if the doctors we witness and we observe, if they don't show compassion and if they communicate poorly, we're going to learn those things, right? And so some of our medical training has to be unlearning and just recognizing that we learn this language and it's really a foreign language. All this jargon that we speak is very specific, but go back to when you're a first year medical student and say, I didn't know what these words meant. What's dyspnea? What's angina? What, it, what, you know, what are these fancy tests that we do? Our patients don't understand that. And so how can we, uh, you know, communicate with compassion. Part of that is, I love what you said, speaking clearly, um, not using jargon as much as you can and unlearning some of the things you've seen. Okay. I know we got to wrap it up soon, but I'm going to say that again, unlearning, because I really think medicine is an apprenticeship and you often learn from other trainees. So you're learning as a lower level resident from an upper level resident or as a medical student from a resident. And those residents are pushed for time and often burdened and they haven't even learned enough to grow into their full style yet. So really trying to be a watch how your attendings interact with people, even if you have limited interaction with them and watch, think about how it would feel really. It's as simple as thinking about how you'd feel if you were the patient and how do you want to be treated or if the patient's your mom, right? And trying to slow things down for what that person needs. And I say all the time to my patients, I understand because this is your only experience. And I see this all the time. And I talk about hard topics all the time. So to me, I'm not that worried because I feel like we'll be okay in the end. But I understand that you are because so far this has been really hard for you. And it's just acknowledging pain and grief and emotions and anxiety. I think that's very valuable. Right. And in a simple, we know from research too, that a simple message of support can reduce your patient's anxiety. Something like, you know, what you're going through is really scary. You're not going to be alone in this. We are here to support you. Something that just takes a few seconds that can be really, really profound in helping your patients through their journey of illness. All right. Well, I'm going to I could talk to you all day and monopolize all of your time, Laura, because I just, I, I love your perspective. Um, and I want to encourage everybody to follow you on Instagram and follow your writing, because I really feel like you have a way of humanizing medicine and bringing us to a level where we really are trying to function on our best as just human beings every day. And that's really what doctors are. You're just humans who are trying to care and help for other humans. And nobody is going to be perfect. And it's going to be hard and yucky and there's unpredictable things that are going to come. But your writing is gorgeous. You are just an amazing soul and I've loved being your friend. Can you tell everybody where they can find you? What all's on the horizon for you? Like what, what people can look out for if they want to kind of connect in further with this idea? You're so kind, Natalie. I'm so grateful for your friendship. Um, so I am on um, Instagram at doc, D-O-C, Laura Vater. That's V-A-T-E-R. I have a website that's where it hosts most of my writing, and that's lauravotter.com. 
I'm also on Twitter, but I'm more on Instagram, I think, than Twitter and uh, in the horizon. So I have this trademark that's just coming through. I have a, a novel that, fingers crossed, is going to get published. Going to, it's going to. <laughs> um, and then I'm, I'm working on a number of essays right now. And so I think long term for me, I see myself as uh, a writer, a physician, and I want to really be in the sphere of cancer prevention and promotion of clinician health. The last thing I want you to tell us before I get you off of here is I'd really love if you want to give the high level summary for what do you kind of, if somebody says, I want to, I don't want to have cancer. I want to prevent cancer. How do I live my healthiest life? I know none of it's like news flash worthy stuff because it's probably all general health stuff, but what is your, you know, spiel about this is the best thing to do? We can't prevent all cancer, but to do our best to prevent as many cancers as possible, Please get enough sleep to support your immune system. Um, exercise consistently every day if you can. Find healthy ways to de-stress. So learn to meditate. Try to avoid things like heavy alcohol use or tobacco. Um, make sure that you're eating mostly plants. Um, Plant-based diet is really going to be the best approach for you and try to stay away from meat and dairy products as much as possible. Okay, Laura, thank you so much for the time. And I just would love that you're here. I'm going to have you on more when um, your next book comes out. We'll get you back on to talk about that. I would love that. Thank you so much, Natalie. I appreciate it so much. All right, friends. Well, I hope you loved that as much as I did. Laura is just an amazing person. And I really hope she put some things into perspective for you. As always, I appreciate your love and support. You can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD. Or you can check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. Thanks, friends. Hey, guys. Welcome to The Collective. I'm Brian Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join the collective.